What is the kingdom? A man named Randy Pope said this, the kingdom of God is the reign of Christ the king in the lives of his kingdom people. And it grows extensively, that is broader, that is numbers of people that are coming to faith. And it grows intensively, that is deeper, as more and more areas of my life, your life, get submitted unto the lordship of Christ. All along we've said this, courage from above leads to faith. God's people need more leaders worth following. Faith comes by hearing. We must ask, God, are we on your side? The weapon of our faith is worship. Last week we said we sin in the dark, but God redeems in the light. For those of you that keep following along, we're still in this section, which is that middle section. It's the taking of the land in chapters 6 through 12. Next week we'll dive uh, heavily into the battles themselves, and we'll come to the ethics um, of, of war, why war, etc., um, that, that uh, we'll get to. A man named Keith Brooks says this. We make more haste than good progress in any business when we do not stop to take God along with us. We make more haste than good progress in any business when we do not stop to take God along with us. This is a, uh, a I hope it doesn't come across as too trite or too cheesy or whatever word um, someone would use um, in today's uh, terminology. I'm still stuck in mostly 80s terminology and there's so... I hope this doesn't come across as, 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 as really um, insincere, cheap, and et cetera. But haste leads to waste. It really does. In little areas of our life, haste leads to waste. You need a shirt. And so you find a shirt that is at a great price. And you say, I got to have it right now. You get that shirt, and then you realize that it only lasts you about four and a half minutes. And then you got to go and buy another one. You've wasted time. You've wasted resources investing into a shirt that's not going to last. It's true also of other purchases that have a little bit more value for us. It could be true of a car. I just need to get my son something to drive because I'm so sick of taking him to school. Not that I've ever had that thought. <laughs> and so I get a vehicle. And, and, and it's at a pretty good price, something that is uh, well within my budget. I'm thinking, this is fantastic. And that car lasts all of a few months. And now I'm back in the same position that I was before, having to now make even more of an investment, take even more time I'm in there. It happens in even more significant areas in our lives. You're in a rush because you're so lonely and you want to get married. And this person seems as though everything is, is as it should be. They use some of the same language that you do. It seems as though you're talking about the same things, but the rush and the adrenaline, the excitement of being in this new relationship leads to a longer-term decision that has some challenges to it. Haste oftentimes leads to waste. It's true of our time. It's true of our resources. It's true of other things. 
The flip to this, though, is that prayer leads to progress. Stopping, bowing the knee, inviting God to come to have his way, to guide, to lead, to direct, to orchestrate, to to put us in a position, and then being willing to step back and to wait until we get a sense that this is his leading. Prayer leads to progress. What is it that we want? We want to move forward. We want progress in life. We want to get better at at whatever it is that we're doing. Whether it's the merger in a business, we don't want to make haste in that. We want to prayerfully consider that. Whatever the circumstance might be, prayer, more often than not, is going to lead to progress. So the question for us is this, what, what do we want? And more specifically, what do we expect from God if we're going to take the time to stop, slow down, and to ask him to guide and to lead us? How do you expect to be led by God? If you have your Bibles, open with me to Joshua chapter 9. And this is going to talk about the kingdom and how the kingdom advances. And it's going to look at a story here in which there is going to be um, haste um, that leads uh, to something. And I want to show you, though, and we'll talk about at the end, how God um, flat out brings about redemption even in the midst of this. If you're physically able, would you stand and join as we read God's word? Um, if you can't, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. You can honor God just as much in your seat as you would um, sitting up. Now, I'm going to skip around um, in here. So uh, we're going to make our way from uh, all through chapter 9 and then through the first 15 verses of 10, but we're going to hold off on chapter 10. With it. So I'm going to skip around reading starting here in verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Skip down to verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, that is the Israelites, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Go down to verse 22. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, that is the Gibeonites, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants 
for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand and whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did it. I'm sorry. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. You may be seated. Now, we've just come off of the sin that was in the camp in Ai, and then God redeemed it by giving them another battle. And so they asked the Lord, what is it that we should do? The Lord told them what it is that he was going to do. He gave them the, the battle plan, and so they move forward, and they, they walk in victory. And so now comes the time in which they're getting ready to march forward um, a little bit more. And it tells us here in chapter 9 that there are some people that hear. Now notice the pattern once again. As soon as all the kings that were beyond the Jordan the Hill Country and in the uh, lowland, all along the coast of the Great Sea, towards all the ites, heard they gathered. Now we've seen this before in Joshua, haven't we? Rahab heard what it is that the Lord had done, and so she moved toward the spies. She moved toward saying, I have heard that your God is the God of the universe. And so she comes to them. She initiates. She, she comes, I, I want in. It's not the only time that somebody had heard. In chapter 5, as soon as all the kings of the Anamorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit because of them. As soon as all the kings heard, their hearts melted. Chapter 5. And here in chapter 9, as soon as all the kings heard of this, they gathered together. Now, please note this, all along, everywhere that Joshua moves forward, there is always the opportunity for the inhabitants of the land to bow the knee of submission to Jehovah. They had the opportunity to repent. They had the opportunity to say, you are the true God of the universe, and so we're going to bow to you. And some would do that. Most would not. Rahab would do that. These kings say, uh, we've heard what it is that Joshua has done. And so we have got to gather together. We've got to band together to stand against this kingdom that's advancing. My friends, do not be surprised when the forces of the world gather and band together to fight against the kingdom of God. Don't ever be shocked by it. Probably what should not come out of our mouths is, can you believe? Yeah. Can you believe the media? Can you believe this? If they are not, have not been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, if their hearts have not been oriented towards the things of the Father, fighting against their natural desires of the flesh, of course they're going to come against the kingdom. Don't be surprised. 
Are you surprised when you find it in your own heart when your flesh wages war against you? Paul says, don't be surprised. That which comes naturally to me is to push against everything that comes from God. That's what comes naturally to me. That is my flesh. The spirit of God that lives inside of me wages war against that, and my flesh wages war against God. I'm Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that's from someone who is trying to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. What's it like for someone who is not at all trying to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? Don't ever be surprised. And here's the other thing. Don't ever take it personally. Because it's not about you. It's about God. Do you know the ultimate message of God is this? I am. You are not. But I can make you. But the issue is that I can't make myself what I want to be. I have to come to God. I am weak. I am inferior. I am powerless. I cannot do what it is that is necessary to be done. So I have to humble myself before God and say, God, I need you. And every, we hate that. And so the values of the world will come in conflict with the values of the kingdom of God. Don't ever be surprised. Don't ever take it personally and hear me. And don't ever forget who the enemy actually is. The enemy is not the person that is cussing you. You want to fight for them. You want to fight for their soul. You want to fight for God to invade their space. You want to you want to pray that God would sooner rather than later bring them to an end of themselves. They would become so miserable in a life of sin. They would find it to be so empty that they would have nowhere else to look but up and say, oh, that's who you are. I'm not saying we don't have to engage in fights here in the world. Please don't hear that. I'm not saying that it's not appropriate for us to go nose to nose when harm is being done whether that's through the political means or whether that's through a physical means or an emotional means. I'm not saying that there's never a time for us to engage in battle in what may have all appearances of being with another person. I'm saying that they're not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. So how do you fight? Have you begun to march on your knees yet? So there's this opposition that is coming against them in verses 1 to 2. It's an alliance of an opposition. In verses 3 through 13, we find a great performance by Gibeon. This is the group of people that actually live much closer, but they put on this ruse. This word that is used here for ruse, um, or in, in, I think I read it was cunning. Uh, they, they, they participated in cunning. That word in Hebrew is used in other places in a very positive sense. It's very, in other words, there's a lot of wise decision-making planning that's going on here. They just are, are using it in a manner that may not be as wonderful and, and et cetera. Uh, but they act with cunning um, in this. They see the other people in the area that's around them, and, uh, and they say, no, that's not what we're going to do there. Do you know their reasoning for not doing it, though? They had a superstitious fear of Joshua himself. They didn't have a fear of the Lord. It was a fear of Joshua. 
They find out what the God of Joshua has done, but they continue to come back to Joshua, it's you. We fear you. They feared a particular leader. And so this is why we have no reason to believe that at this time, any of them are believers in Jehovah. They just are trying to save their necks. So they come up with a great plan. Let's make them think that we're so far out of the radius of what their God has called them to protect so that if we do this, then they will be forced um, to leave us alone. And I think we can do that if we look really bad. So they put on, and it says worn out, I think, three or four times. And they're worn out clothes. There's worn out food. There's worn out wineskins. They're just worn out. And so they come in in the same kind of way that I would have gone into my parents in the sixth grade trying to fake being sick. Here we are, Joshua. We've had to run two marathons to get to you. And our clothes are so old. And these wineskins, as you can see, we put new wine in it before we left. But look at it now. It's because it's taken a million years to get to you. Now, what is the fault of the Israelites here? What kind of haste led to waste? They relied only and exclusively on their senses. There is nothing wrong with putting stock in our senses. You should. God gave them to you for a reason. If you smell smoke, you should probably think, there's a fire that will go well for you. I, your eyes aren't necessarily deceiving you when you see something. It's just that to rely on important decision-making on our senses alone doesn't make spiritual sense. So the problem is they just relied on it, um, on, on it alone. <laughs> there. Verses... 14 and 15. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. They heard, I'm sorry, they saw and they touched the worn outness of the, the, the materials, et cetera, that people had. They saw what they looked like, and they even touched some of those things, the wineskins, the garments, etc. there. They heard what it is that the people were saying regarding the victories of their God. And so because they heard somebody said, man, you're God, we're fearful of you now. They may have even been led to believe, well, then they're probably for us. They saw, they touched, they heard. They smelled and they tasted the old, dry, and crumbly bread. They even took a portion of it and tasted it just a tad bit just to find out. And it said, you know what? It all looks like it's making sense. It, 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 it all's coming together. Um, I choose to believe you. And so, hey, let's get this thing done because we've got a, a battle to fight. We've got to keep moving forward. We've got to keep going. So let's just make this treaty and let's get this thing done. And the scripture points out for us, they did not 
Seek the counsel of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that when you walk into the grocery store, when you walk into Publix or Walmart or whatever grocery store, I'm not saying you need to say aisle number one. Oh, God, what would you have me buy on the left? I'm not saying that you need to spend six hours in prayer before you decide what shirt to wear in the morning. I'm saying that in matters uh, that matter, in, in, in aspects of our life, that matter, we would be wise to not try to make a decision that seems like it needs to be made so quickly and that we would seek the Lord on this. So how do we seek the Lord? I'm going to give you some principles um, here, and I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can because I think it'll make sense. None of this is going to be on the screen because I decided to alter this on Friday after the notes were turned in on Thursday. How do we determine God's leading? Number one, set your desires on the altar of God. Set your desires on the altar of God. What do I mean by that? Listen to Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Discerning God's will, the first thing that needs to to take place is that I am in a position... We are in a position where we're saying, Lord, we are willing to do whatever it is that you want to do. Putting my desires, putting my hopes, putting my dreams all on the altar sacrificed over to you. So if you lead this way, then we will choose to go this way. If you lead this way, then we'll choose to go this way. Nothing wrong with you saying, and God, I really want you to lead me this way. Nothing wrong with that. What I can't do is say, God, I will obey you if you lead in this way. But if you lead this way, I'm not going to go. The desires of our heart have to be set intentionally, willfully onto the altar of God. Saying, God, it's yours. That's the first, first piece of it. The second thing is to search God, God's word for principles. Set your desires on the altar of God. Number two, search God's word for principles that will guide us. You are not going to find a specific verse about what college you should choose. You're not going to find a specific verse in the scripture as to whether or not you should date Sally. You're not going to find a specific verse in scripture that will tell you which car you should buy. You're not going to find a specific verse in the Bible that's going to tell you what church you should join. What we do need to do is to get familiar enough with the Scriptures. We need to read the Scriptures over and over and listen. Look for the principles in the Scripture that will guide your decision-making. You have two cars that you really like? First step, Lord, I'm willing to do either one of these. And what is wise and prudent you have based on your income, you know that you can handle a payment of somewhere between five and $600 a month. In other words, that won't put you back. You can be a good steward, all that. You've got that in front of you. Fantastic. So you go to the store, you go to the whatever the the place, and you say, man, this is a beautiful truck. 
And this thing would be so good for me right now. And I could do this, and I could serve my wife this way, and I could serve my children this way, blah, 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 blah. And this truck is amazing, and it's only going to cost you $900 a month. I think the Lord is leading me to get this vehicle. And you know what I, that's what I think he's doing? I think he's asking me to step out in faith. The principle in the word is, if your budget can't handle it, don't do it. What are the principles that drive you? Looking for a spouse? Guys, absolutely. Look for a woman that you're attracted to in every sense of the word, physically, emotionally, all that. But make sure that you're attracted to her spiritually as well. Make sure that this is not just a woman who you look at and say, Lord, you did good right there. You're just showing off. Make sure that's not the only thing that you're looking for. What are the principles in the scripture? Well, years down the road, when she doesn't look like she did in her 20s, guess what's going to look even better? Her character, according to the scriptures. A godly woman will become even more attractive over time. Trust me, I know. Ladies, um, he may sound really great and romantic and maybe Mr. Suave, debonair, uh, all of that, and he may be filthy rich. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with desiring that. But you better make sure it is a walk with the Lord. Because a rich man has a greater temptation to forget who the Lord is. And so if you want to be provided for with material things, great, but that's probably all you're going to get from it. What do the principles of the Scriptures give to us? Set your desires on the altar of God. Search God's Word for principles that will guide us. Number three, seek godly counsel from God's people. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Find other people that you trust, that you know have a track record of walking with God. In particular, I would say, if you know they have a, a, a track record of wise decision making, talk to them, ask them, seek their counsel. Get into God's word, get with God's people, and then watch how much God is going to lead you. So listen to the counsel. It doesn't mean that you have to always do what it is that they say that, that they think you should do. I sought counsel from my father. I sought counsel from the senior pastor of the church at the time. Do you think that I should go and finish college or should I go to Atlanta to do this internship? Both of them said finish college. I had a sense in my gut that the Lord was saying, pursue this. I listened to their counsel. I heeded their counsel. And in many ways, had I gone ahead and finished college, it would have made things a whole lot easier. But also would have missed out on the training that I got that I will tell you was life transforming. Set your desires on the altar of God. Search God's word for principles that will guide. Seek godly counsel from God's people. And then finally, be settled by God's peace. 
Now, if you have been walking with the Lord for a while, you know what I mean by this. There are some things that are going to come along in your life that you say, I think we need to do this. I don't know that we need to. I think we need to do this. And so you say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever. And and you hit your knees and you pray and you ask God to to lead, to, to guide through his word. You seek counsel on it. But when you hit your knees and you ask God, God, would you guide? There's a peace that comes in your mind over a particular choice. Trust that. Don't trust it if you haven't done any of the other things. But if you've been faithful all along, trust that there is going to be a deep-seated peace that only God can bring. It is a peace that according to the book of Philippians, Paul writing in there, it's a peace that actually passes understanding. Meaning not that it's counter-understanding, meaning that it goes past just what is rational. It goes past that which feels right. It goes into the depths of your soul that says, I have peace over this. It's coming from God. If you don't have that peace, don't move forward. Wait. They made a hasty decision. They did not follow David McNeely's formula for determining God's will. I hope you know that's tongue-in-cheek. In verses 16 through 27, there is a decision that they make. In verses 16 to 21, there's an investigation. Three days later, Joshua discovers the deceit of the people uh, on their part. And notice that Joshua does not place the blame on other people. He just simply accepts it. Even though he was not the only one involved in here. He's the one who actually was responsible for the decision being made. And so Joshua doesn't shift the blame off of anyone else, onto anyone else. But notice also this. Notice also that the the leaders admitted their mistake. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, the people grumble against Joshua and the leaders. And the leaders in verse 19 say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep our word. Now, why are they grumbling? Probably for two reasons. Number one, they're probably grumbling because they would not now be able to take the plunder of the people. But they were probably also grumbling because they knew that God had told them earlier through Moses When you come in to settle in this land, do not bring others in who are going to have foreign gods. And so the people, probably like you and me, have some mixed motives in this. They probably have some motives that that are selfishly uh, uh, generated, and they probably have some motives that are very godly oriented and generated. And the people are grumbling against the leaders. But here's what I love. The people come to the leaders, and they confront their leaders. And their leaders say, yep, we blew it. But here's what we're going to do. We're not going to compound the mistake by going against the principles of Moses, that which Moses wrote to us. We're going to keep our word. Even though we entered into this relationship through deceptive means, we're going to keep our word. Do not hear me say that right now every Christian should honor every contract no matter how deceived you were in the process. Please do not hear that. That's not what this is saying right here. What it's saying in this circumstance, Joshua made a covenant with the people. And because they made that covenant, God said, honor the covenant. Even though you didn't search me out first, honor the covenant. Why? Because they are a visible representation on earth of who God is in heaven. And do you think God keeps his word? 
So, verses 22 and 25 through 25 is the confrontation. And then finally in 26 and 27 is the implementation. I just have to read this to you, though, from Warren Wiersbe. And then we'll very briefly hit the, uh, the, the, the battle. There is no evidence in Scripture that the descendants of the Gibeonites created any problems for the Jews. It's likely that their service in the tabernacle and later in the temple influenced them to abandon their idols and worship the God of Israel. The fact that over 500 of them returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity suggests that they were devoted to the Lord and to his house. Now this is, and Warren would be the first one to tell you this, um, with the Lord, so I wouldn't do that now, but he'd be the first one to tell you, this is guesstimated, this is thus saith Warren Wearsby, and thus saith David right now, not thus saith the Lord, but it sure seems that we have some evidence in the scriptures that because there was such a large portion of them that returned back when the people had no power at that point, years down the road, when they had no power at that point, they came back, sure seems to suggest that many of them had turned their hearts towards the Lord. So in a deceitful, cunning, self-motivated, man-centered way, a covenant was made. God brought redemption likely down the road. Now, I'm going to get into this and then we'll pick up um, more with it um, next week. But chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai... Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to, and there's a whole bunch of people. Verse 4, come up to, to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of that too, encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, now please get this. They now hear that, that the Gibeonites have turned their back on this alliance and they've actually made peace with Israel. And so this king, whose name is Adonai Zedek, is the king of Jerusalem. This is the first time Jerusalem is mentioned in all of the Bible. This is not yet the city of God. It is not yet the city on a hill. It's not yet the place where God's presence is going to reside throughout their history. It is not yet fought over like it's going to be fought over. And the king of Jerusalem, who is not a God-fearer, who does not worship Jehovah, guess what his name means? His name in uh, the scriptures means, I'm sorry, my Lord is righteous. A king who doesn't even know the Lord yet is named by his mom and daddy with a name that says, my Lord is righteous. Now, they probably had a whole other Lord in mind. The, 
there is an alliance of opposition that comes to them. And then verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And, Josh, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands, and not a man um, of them shall stand before you. Joshua did not make the same mistake twice. The Gibeonites are not putting on a performance now. They're making a genuine request, a genuine request here. And so Joshua then goes to the Lord and he says, what would you have us to do? And the Lord says, go. I'm going to hand them over to you. And so they march all throughout the night. And they come in, and this is so great. Do you know how God deals with them? He sends down hail. And more hail kills people that are the enemies than do the swords of God's people. And there comes a point in the battle in which Joshua says, Lord, um, we need a little bit more time. Uh, We're winning this thing, but we need some more time. We're running out of daylight. And so he prays that God would somehow or another extend the day. And here's what the scripture says. The scripture says that the sun stops. Now, in the same way that Genesis 1 is not written to give us the exact how God did it, it just gives us what God did. This chapter here tells us what God did. Somehow or another, it appeared as if the sun stopped in the sky. How did God pull that off? I have no idea. I don't know if the earth stopped spinning. I don't know if that because of stars and because of refraction and reflection and all sorts of other rewords that are scientific, that somehow the light shone down. I have no idea what happened. What I do know is this. The people thought that the sun had stopped, and God did that at the request of a man who was saying, God, I want to continue taking ground for you. I want to continue advancing forcefully for you. I want your honor and your fame to be made great in this world, so would you somehow or another give us the power to do it? God says, absolutely, great prayer. When we recognize who the enemy is, many of us are going to have this response. Lord, I just need time with that man who doesn't know you. Would you cause him to have a thirst in life? Would you cause him to have questions? God, would you give me more time? Would you multiply my time? There's just too many people to talk to about you. You who satisfy the souls of all who come before you and bow the knee of submission, would you give me an opportunity to share? Do you think God's going to say, no, don't want that? I have no idea how God did what he did, but I have no idea how he made the earth out of nothing. I have no idea how he parted waters. I have no idea how he does what he does. I just believe with every fiber of my being, God did it because his word says it. Oh, my friends, when it comes to the kingdom of God advancing, haste makes waste. Don't for a moment think that the person that you are currently praying for is too far gone, 
and that time is going to run out. God who can extend the sun. God can move into the hearts of those that you are praying for. Don't be in such a hurry. Hit your knees and march forward and wait for God to provide the opportunity. And when he does, man, do you have a great story to tell. Haste makes waste. Prayer leads to progress.